0: Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. First episode of 2021. Hopefully your new year is off to a good start. Made any New Year's resolutions? Maybe already broken one or two? Our theme this month isn't New Year's specifically. Rather, it's two closely related ideas that are inseparably tied to New Year's renewal and rebirth. Two closely intertwined concepts that are woven throughout history and our lives today. Indeed, as I mentioned just a moment ago, We've just come through a celebration that embraces those ideas. Ideas of new possibilities coming along with the new year. The sense of having a blank slate to a degree, leaving last year behind and opening a new chapter. And after 2020, I think we're all feeling that more than ever. I said that our theme isn't dedicated exclusively to New Year's, but we'll certainly be talking about it in the process. In the ancient Greco Roman world, where it's not exactly consistent, The Chinese New Year, a grand celebration also referred to as the Lunar New Year, and India where we find multiple celebrations depending on the region. Then of course we have our version here in the United States based on the Gregorian calendar. There's much more to our theme though. New Year celebrations are just one part of it, so let's start off our theme, and our year, by traveling back to the ancient Greek and Roman world. First, I'm actually going back a bit more, just to touch on the oldest known New Year celebration. This particular honor is held by ancient Babylon in the Mesopotamia region, dating back to around 2000 BCE or so. This took place following the first new moon after the vernal equinox, which is in late March. In case you need a refresher, the vernal equinox is one of two times that day and night are equal in length. The other is the autumnal equinox. So at this point, we've moved away from the darkness of the winter solstice and into a time where light and dark are balanced. This is the time when the Babylonians held a festival to celebrate the rebirth of the natural world. There it is, half our theme, rebirth. 2,000 years ago and we've already found new years and our theme intertwined. To celebrate this time, the Babylonians held a 12-day festival called Akitu. The Babylonians were pagans, and as you might expect, the gods were included in the festivities. Statues of the gods were taken to the streets and paraded out for all to see. But it gets more specific and more interesting than just taking statues out to the streets. On the fifth day, the god Marduk is central to a ritual involving the Babylonian king. Marduk was the patron deity of Babylon and eventually became the chief god in the Babylonian pantheon as Babylon became the political center of the Euphrates Valley during Hammurabi's reign in the 18th century BCE. His temple was called the Asaglia, which is where his statue and those of the other gods were housed. In terms of equivalence with the Greco-Roman gods, Marduk is equated with Zeus and Jupiter. In the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, Marduk's story is told from his birth to attaining the position as ruler of the gods. To summarize, he emerged as a young god during a civil war among the gods. He answered the call to fight and was promised the position of head deity if he won. When he entered the war, he challenged Tiamat, leader of the opposing gods. She was the primordial goddess of the salt sea and symbol of creation. She mated with Abzu, the god of fresh water to produce younger gods. In a way, she can be likened to the titans in Greco-Roman myth. Marduk challenged her with the four winds plus seven new ones he created, such as the tornado. He used these to blow her up into the air following trapping her in his net, then he fired an arrow into her exposed belly, killing her. He then killed Kingu, who had killed his father Abzu and whom Tiamat had put in charge of the army. With the war won, he was given the Tablet of Destinies. This clay tablet, with cuneiform writing and cylinder seals, indicated that the bearer was the supreme ruler of the universe. Tiamat had granted it to Kingu first, intending for him to be in the role after the war. But when he was killed, Marduk claimed the tablets for himself. In doing so, he guaranteed his position as the supreme deity, And this went beyond the promise the other gods had made when he agreed to fight. Among other things, humans were created while he reigned. Apparently, this was for one single purpose, labor. They were to carry the burdens of life, allowing the gods to live in leisure. They were even instructed to build him a temple, which was called Babel, or Gate of God. So this god was of great importance. He defeated Tiamat and ended the chaotic civil war, which soon led to the creation of humans. In the fifth day of Akitu, the Babylonian king presented himself before the statue of Marduk in the Asaglia temple, where a priest assumed the role of Marduk. Once the king was present, the priest would take away his crown and all other regalia and outright slap him. It was a show of the king submitting himself to Marduk. After being slapped, he would pray for Marduk's forgiveness, saying he had not sinned or neglected Marduk's might. The priest, speaking for Marduk, would then say not to fear. Marduk heard his prayers, extended power to him, and made his reign greater. Once these lines were spoken, the king was dressed again in his regalia, and then he was slapped again as hard as the priest possibly could with the intent of making the king shed tears. The idea was to further demonstrate the king's submission to Marduk. The return of the king's crown represented Marduk renewing the king's power, and so it was not only the natural world being renewed, but the state as well. The celebration goes on, but this is the point I wanted to get to. The rebirth of the natural world is simple enough to understand, but it's this ritual symbolizing the renewal of the state that stands out. We literally have a king submitting himself to Marduk, not just by having his regalia taken away, but by allowing a human priest to slap him at least twice. It's a strange ritual to think about, given what we generally expect of kings. Yet during this Akitu celebration of renewal and rebirth at their New Year's, it was a large part of the tradition. So that gives us the earliest known New Year's celebration, and the presence of renewal and rebirth in it. This rebirth is about the defeat of chaos in the world, it's the natural world being reborn, and simultaneously it's about the renewal of the state and the king's power. In ancient Greece, it's a little harder to nail down exactly what they were doing for this idea of a new year's celebration, mainly because there was no one unified way to celebrate. In fact, there wasn't even one agreed upon time because all the polis were operating on their own calendars. And all of that depends on whether or not they celebrated at all. One thing we do know is that a lunisolar calendar was used in Athens, which determined the new year began with the first sighting of the new moon following the summer solstice. Translated to the Gregorian calendar, this occurred around June or July. However, because the time between the solstice and the new moon varied, the date of the new year could change by up to a month. To briefly explain what a lunar-solar calendar is, it takes the lunar calendar and adds a solar cycle around every third year, a leap year, though unlike our leap year, it was 384 days long, after which a thirteenth lunar cycle would be added to the year in order to get the solar and lunar years back in alignment. This was done by repeating an existing month, most often this was the sixth month, Poseidon, So, after that month concluded, another Poseidon month began. How all of this was accomplished was decided through various cycles to make the necessary calculations. It does not seem to have been a simple process by any means, but it did help keep the year aligned with the seasons, which helped maintain a fairly consistent calendar. Rather than try to pin down what the new year was like in Athens or any other part of Greece, I'm going to focus on where we find our theme. And that takes us to the myth of Persephone. Persephone, goddess of vegetation, was the daughter of Zeus and Demeter, goddess of the harvest and agriculture. She also became the wife of Hades, though this was not by her own choice. We know of her story through the Greek poet Hesiod's Theogony and the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. The latter is one of 33 anonymous poems collected in the Homeric Hymns each dedicated to a god or goddess. They are called Homeric not because they were written by Homer, but because they share many similarities in comparison with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Hades had fallen in love with the beautiful Persephone, but he knew it was unlikely that Demeter would allow her daughter to be with him in the underworld. So instead he went to Zeus, who allowed Hades to abduct her. Not exactly a typical way to ask a father permission to marry his daughter. And don't forget, Hades and Zeus are brothers, so this is also Hades' niece. These gods really did get up to all sorts of questionable things. But then, that's how they were perceived, not all-knowing, all-powerful beings. So Hades waited for Persephone to go out away from Demeter. She went to pick flowers with the Oceanids, 3,000 nymphs who were the daughters of the titans Oceanus and Tethys. That 3,000 isn't necessarily a specific number, but has often been interpreted as meaning that they were innumerable. Also with Persephone in this place were goddess of the hunt Artemis and Pallas. Pallas was the daughter of Triton, who was the son of Poseidon. The Homeric hymn describes the abduction as Hades' bursting through a cleft in the earth while she gathered flowers. Those around her were either powerless to stop him or were distracted at the moment of her abduction. Upon learning of her daughter's disappearance, Demeter searched the earth with the aid of the goddess Hecate's torches. During this time of her despair, nothing on earth grew. Two reasons are given for this, with most versions indicating that she outright forbade the earth from producing anything until her daughter was found. In others, it was simply her neglect that caused this. Whatever the reason, this despair continued until the sun god Helios, who by virtue of being the sun had seen everything that happened, informed Demeter that Hades had taken Persephone. With these troubles ongoing, both humans and deities alike began to press Zeus to do something. It was the humans first, begging Zeus because their hunger worsened with each day that the earth did not produce. This, of course, affected both crops and the livestock who fed on the vegetation. Other deities began pressing him when they heard the cries of the suffering humans. Eventually, Zeus could ignore them no longer, so he demanded that Hades return Persephone to Earth. However, Hades wasn't ready to give up his wife. Not entirely, anyway. Before allowing her to return, he tricked her into eating pomegranate seeds. The significance is that these were fruit of the underworld, not earth. To eat such food from the underworld made it impossible to return to the world of the living. Demeter was aware of the significance and had been told that Persephone could return as long as she ate nothing from the underworld. But she wasn't present and could not warn her daughter. When Hermes retrieved her, Hades' trick was revealed and there was nothing anyone, even the mighty Zeus, could do about it. In the original myth, Persephone spent three months in Hades, one month for each seed. These were, appropriately, the winter months. Later writers, like Ovid, expanded this to half a year. However long this term was, it corresponded to times when drought threatened vegetation in hot summers, or the autumn and winter months when plants stopped producing. In these times, it is Demeter's grief and despair that affect the earth. Remember, these myths are ways of explaining natural phenomena. And it is Persephone's return that brings about a sense of renewal. Plants and vegetation on earth begin growing again. A sense of rebirth as new vegetation grows and plants begin to produce once more. Now, the idea of renewal and rebirth in the natural world isn't necessarily the overall point of Persephone's abduction myth as the Greeks interpreted it back then. But when I was thinking of our theme, her story came to mind. Demeter, by intent or neglect, was killing the world in her despair. The vegetation needed to sustain all life wasn't growing. Only Persephone's return led Demeter to reverse this. A renewal, a rebirth. It truly comes in all forms, and that's what makes it fun to explore. So now let's go to Rome, where we're going to meet a god that I've mentioned before. Rome had a more official new year, originally corresponding with the vernal equinox. But as you may recall, the Romans messed with their calendar a bit, though they were using a solar calendar, not lunar or lunisolar. In doing so, they eventually ended up with a new year celebrated on January 1st, just as we celebrate it today. The name of the month comes from the god Janus. It's a very fitting name for the month in which a new year begins with Janus being the god of beginnings and transitions, among other things. Quite a few other things, in fact. Along with beginnings and transitions, he's associated with doorways, passages, duality, time, gates, and endings. Many aspects, but all thematic. He was a primordial deity. That is, he didn't have any parents. Additionally, he was uniquely Roman. The Greeks had no deity that was equivalent to Janus. In terms of appearance, he was depicted as having two faces, one looking to the past, the other to the present, one to beginning, the other to ending. Already you can see that this god embodies some ideas of our theme. He's not only the god of beginnings or of endings, but of both. While renewal and rebirth are not listed among his aspects, The idea is still there if we look into it just a bit. Celebrations on January 1st were built on the idea that this day was setting up the next 12 months. Naturally, everyone wanted to set things up for a positive year. One ritual involved giving offerings to Janus. The hope was that these offerings would bring good fortune for the coming year. It seems that in this case, these were not animal sacrifices as we have often seen in the ancient Greco-Roman celebrations. Rather, Ovid states that these propitiations were comprised of spelt and pure salt. These offerings were gathered and burned at an altar. Neighbors and friends would offer each other well wishes, as well as gifts of figs and honey. Dates and coins may have been exchanged as well. Additionally, most Romans also worked for part of this day. Idleness was actually seen as a bad omen, so they made sure to avoid it on this day of preparation for the new year. Everything was centered on preparing for the twelve months to come. The Roman held a belief that the beginning of a thing was an omen for the rest of it. So when one year ended, it marked the beginning of another, a symbolism embodied in Janus. It was a renewal or rebirth in which the Romans started anew with a blank slate of a new year. They dedicated this celebration to preparing for it, a renewal of life in a new year. Strictly symbolic, but a very strong idea all the same. Not entirely unlike what we have, but that's a matter we'll look at in a few weeks. As part of the Roman adoption and adaptation of Greek myth, the story of Persephone, Demeter, and Hades carries over. Their Roman equivalents are Prosperina, Ceres, and Pluto. A few versions exist in surviving Latin literature, but the majority of each maintains similarity to the original Greek myth. Since those similarities cover the parts relating to our theme, I won't go over the details again, except one point that I forgot to make earlier. Not only is the story one of renewal of the natural world based on the actions of Demeter or Ceres, but also a kind of death and rebirth for Persephone or Prosperina. While the story says nothing in the way of Persephone dying, eating the food of the dead prevented her from returning to the world of the living permanently. For each seed eaten, she had to spend a month in the underworld each year. So at the end of that time, it was like she was reborn to the world of the living, if only temporarily. There's a lot we can find in these myths beyond what we see on the surface. There's another New Year to look at in Rome, or rather the original date prior to January 1st becoming the official one. This is the first day of March, called the Calends of March. The word was used for the first day of every month, and it is from this word that we get the word calendar. It's not surprising that this would be an important day. The month of March is named after Mars, God of War. We talked before about how important he was to the Romans and how they believed that he favored them. On this day, they renewed the sacred fire of Vesta. This was an eternal flame held as sacred by the Romans and symbolic of eternal Rome. Vestal virgins were selected by lot and served for 30 years as caretakers of the flame and the temple in which it was housed. I've mentioned them before. Rhea Silva, mother of Romulus and Remus in Rome's founding myth, was a Vestal virgin when she was raped and impregnated by Mars. They weren't only present in myth, though. The Vestal Virgins were real and served Vesta, goddess of the hearth, from which the sacred fire got its name. Originally there were two Vestal Virgins, but later this increased to four and later on it increased to six. I'm not sure if they were elected all at the same time, but that many would serve at the same time. The temple which housed the fire was Vesta's circular temple located in the Roman Forum and built sometime prior to the Roman Republic. Allowing the fire to go out was an extremely serious offense. It symbolized that the goddess Vesta no longer provided her protection to Rome. Vestal virgins who allowed the fire to go out were punished either by a beating or a scourging, which in history refers to whipping someone as punishment. According to the Greek philosopher Plutarch in the first century CE, The fire could not be relit with any other fire. It had to be lit utilizing pure and unpolluted flame from the sunbeams. When the Calends of March arrived, the fire renewal was carried out by the Vestal Virgins. Continuing with Plutarch's account, they used burning mirrors made of brass to accomplish this. As for the exact details of the renewal, I'm not certain. I couldn't find any details on how exactly the fire was being renewed. Did they let it burn low? Was it to burn out entirely on this one specific day? I honestly can't say. What I can say is that this ritual was important to the Romans. A renewal of the flame was a renewal of Vesta's favor and of Rome itself. At one time this would have coincided with the New Year's rituals that later took place on January 1st. So we've established that the sacred fire of Vesta held a strong symbolism and the act of renewing it was just as strong. Though the temple burned completely at least four times and caught fire on at least two others, this eternal fire was maintained until 349 CE when Christian Emperor Theodosius I had it extinguished as part of eliminating pagan practices in Rome. You can see from these examples how When we find these ideas in our sources, symbolism and metaphors regarding renewal and rebirth were important in both ancient Greece and Rome. And since we're talking about fire, we're going to move back to ancient Greece for something I know you've at least heard of, the phoenix, the bird which dies in flame and is reborn from the ashes. It's the very symbol of rebirth. Were I to assign a symbol to our theme, none would be better. So, let's take a look at this magnificent bird that has captivated people for thousands of years and appeared in countless works across countless mediums. The Greek poet Hesiod is the first one to give us a definite mention of the phoenix in his work, Precepts of Chiron, in the 6th century BCE. Chiron is a wise centaur who was a teacher to Achilles. Unfortunately, most of this work has been lost, but we do have some fragments. In this particular fragment of Hesiod's work, he is telling Achilles about the lifespans of several animals leading up to the nymphs who were the daughters of Zeus. A chattering crow lives out nine generations of aged men, but a stag's life is four times a crow's, and a raven's life makes three stags old, while the phoenix outlives nine ravens, but we, the rich-haired nymphs, daughters of Zeus the aegis holder, outlive ten phoenixes. This number puzzle doesn't tell us much, but it provides evidence of the phoenix dating back to at least Hesiod's time. It really is a shame we can't analyze the rest of this work. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote of the phoenix in the 5th century BCE, though his account actually refers to Egypt. He wrote that the phoenix was an extremely rare bird, which he had only seen in pictures. It appeared only once every 500 years... When the old phoenix died partly red and partly golden with the size and shape of an eagle to the best of my understanding herodotus writes of the bird dying and being reborn at which time it brings the parent body to the temple of the sun in egypt and buries it in a ball of myrrh this parent of course refers to its former body not an actual parent there's no mention of being reborn in flames but of the single bird dying and being reborn every five years. This bird may be the Bennu, an Egyptian deity connected to the sun, creation, and rebirth. It's possible that the Bennu influenced the ancient Greek phoenix, or the other way around. The sources just don't give us a clear and consistent picture on that front. Except that both cultures had birds associated with rebirth. Various poets and historians write about the phoenix in both Greek and Roman sources. We've already mentioned Hesiod and Herodotus. In Rome, Ovid wrote in his Metamorphoses about the bird which renews and rebegets itself rather than being born from others. He writes that the bird builds a nest on a lofty swaying palm that is lined with cassia and spikenard and golden myrrh and shreds of cinnamon. That list of his starts with two things you may not have heard of. Cassia is also referred to as Chinese cinnamon today, and spikenard is an essential oil from a plant in the honeysuckle family. In this nest, among these perfumes, the phoenix died. From his body, which Ovid refers to as the father, a new phoenix is reborn to live 500 years. Once big enough, The young phoenix takes the nest, which is now the father's tomb, to Heliopolis, which is where the Temple of the Sun is in Egypt. The last we'll look at is the Roman poet Claudian, who wrote in the 4th century CE. As far as today's look at the phoenix goes, he is our longest and most detailed source. He writes of the health and greatness of the bird, placing it equal to the gods, which needed no food or drink to survive. It only needed the sun's rays to feed on. This phoenix lives not 500 years, but 1,000. It was immune to the ills of nature and the infections of men. To quote, A mysterious fire flashes from its eyes, and a flaming aureole enriches its head. Its crest shines with the sun's own light and shatters the darkness with its calm brilliance. Claudian really wants to drive home the magnificence of the phoenix. At the time of its death, the phoenix gathered dry herbs from the sun-warmed hills, and making an interwoven heap of the branches of the precious tree of Saba, he builds that pyre which shall at once be his tomb and his cradle. So from his words, we have a pyre now. The sun god Phoebus, or Helios, offered comforting words to the dying phoenix. He spoke of how the bird would leave the aged body behind and emerge in a new, even more beautiful one. He then set the bird on fire himself, a fire from the sun. From the ashes of this pyre, the newly reborn phoenix emerged. Again, the phoenix carried his father back to Egypt to lay him to rest, though, in this case, an entire flock of all kinds of birds accompanied him with no fighting amongst each other. As Claudian concludes following this journey to Egypt, he praises the phoenix. In his words, Death, which proves our undoing, restores thy strength. Praising that it dies, yet death also gives it life. It has seen all that has been with its own eyes. No destruction in the world's history, not even the fates themselves, could end it. Now that sounds like the phoenix we're familiar with. Claudian provided a lot of detail about the phoenix as he knew it, including an account of rebirth from fire and ashes. And that seems like a good stopping point for today. We've been from ancient Babylon, to Greece, Rome, and even a little bit of Egypt. In all, we saw themes of renewal, rebirth, and some New Year celebrations too. And of course, the iconic phoenix. Next week, we're going to explore the history of the Chinese New Year and see what ideas of renewal and rebirth we can find there. Until then, take care.